Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. The Albright Knox Art Gallery in Buffalo has organized the first American career survey of my first guest, A. Eliza Attila. Titled A. Eliza Attila, Ecologies of Drama, the exhibition features eight works, including Consolation Service, The House, The Annunciation, as well as the first U.S. presentation of Attila's Studies on the Ecology of Drama One. The exhibition, which is on view through January 3, 2016, was curated by Kathleen Chafee, who also edited the accompanying book. Attila has participated in Documenta 11, the 2005 Venice Biennale, and the most recent Moscow Biennale, the Moderna Musit in Stockholm, the Jeux de Palme in Paris, and the Kunstsammlung Nordrhein-Westfalen in Dusseldorf have all hosted exhibitions of her work. On the second segment, Tyler Kahn discusses Imperfections by Chance, Paul Feely Retrospective, 1954-66. to Kahn co-curated the show with Douglas Dreischpoon. Feely was an important painter, teacher, and a pivot between color field painting and minimalism. He also organized or co-organized early exhibitions of Jackson Pollock, Barnett Newman, and David Smith. The exhibition is at the Columbus Museum of Art through January 10th, 2016. But first, A. Eliza Attila, after the break. Think you know Picasso? Think again, says WNYC, about the once-in-a-lifetime exhibition Picasso Sculpture, now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Quote, the works are endlessly surprising, sometimes bracingly and thrillingly ugly, and wittier by far than their compliments on canvas or paper, says The Guardian. Art News calls it, quote, a revelatory triumph. Don't miss this sweeping survey featuring over 100 of Picasso's revolutionary three-dimensional works. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Uh Uh-Oh!, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's Alma Mater, backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh Uh-oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. Opening this weekend at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, a focus exhibition featuring the work of Joyce Pensato. Recognizing the emblematic power of cartoons and their ability to critique aspects of contemporary culture, Pensato freezes and modifies some of the most iconic American cartoons and comic book characters, isolating them to further comment on American society and its anxieties. She works in an industrial palette of black, white, and silver enamel. Through January 31st, for more information, visit themodern.org. And we're back. Aeliza Adela, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I want to start very early in your career because you started as a painter before you transitioned into video and film. And I've seen that referenced in almost every Q&A you do, such as in the 2003 interview with Chrissy Isles that's in the exhibitions catalog. I've never read or seen or heard what kind of paintings you made back then. So what 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 did you make? That, that is really not true. I, I think. I'm not a painter. I mean, I studied painting in, in an art school here in Helsinki. But I, if I 
have to say something about my kind of background. I think I'm more a person who loves drawing. I love colors and doing things with colors also in the moving image pieces. But I am not a painter. It's a process that is not really something that I, you know, I like or I don't really want to work with paints paint and do paintings. But I'm really, I really like drawing. And that's what I'm actually start doing again now in a few days time. So did you make drawings when you were in art school? Oh, yeah. And earlier, even when I was a child, like a teenager, I used to draw a lot. And I see kind of similarities between drawing and taking up an empty paper, white paper, whatever, and between writing. It's like, you know, something happens, you write for a certain time, and then you have to take a pause, because then you, when you see it kind of uh, printed, if you write too much, it's going to be part of the, the, the world creating, and one needs to wait. And I think the same, the same thing applies to drawing, that you... You see certain shapes or characters or whatever on the empty paper, empty page, and then you start drawing. And after a certain time, you have to stop. It's and it's kind of inventing worlds or however you want to call it. There are in in your newest work, which is being shown in the U.S. for the first time at the Albright. It's titled Studies on the Ecology of Drama One. There are actually drawings shown in in that in the piece. Are those, are those your drawings? Is that an example of how you translate drawing into moving image? Yeah, kind of one way of doing it. But there's only a few of them. It's kind of, they are there because at that point, I'm kind of bringing together two different things, the dramaturgy in, in films and theater, in drama, and on the other hand, composition in drawings and, and paintings and comparing those two. That's something you've done in a number of works, perhaps most clearly or most straightforwardly in The Annunciation, which for me is one of the great video installations of the century so far. It's I, I can't stop watching it. <laughs> so even for someone who hasn't seen the piece, it's easy to think of the ways into the idea of The Annunciation. There's the question of faith, supernatural experience, the history of painting, particularly perspective, which your piece explores throughout, or even the emergence of, of, of the cult of Mary in the Catholic Church in the first centuries of the first millennium, which leads, of course, to visual representations of Mary beginning in the early fifth century. Where did interest in the Annunciation as a subject start for you? I cannot really, I have to say, I cannot really remember the first time when I started to think about it. But I wanted to do something which is kind of, because I've been like for a long time going more and more towards the narrative film. And I wanted to take kind of step back to, to, to art. And then the paintings kind of fascinated me. They uh, And also the kind of the birth of or bringing the perspective at that time, the time of the, the boom of the Annunciation paintings, bringing the perspective into the paintings. And the way kind of that, how that affected to how we see things and how we order things and also how we kind of create meaning. But actually all this has to do a lot with an incident that happened to me in New York. I went to St. Mark's bookstore 
what I usually do when I'm in New York and uh, kind of just and I ran into a very little book. I'm sorry, I cannot remember the writer of the book, but the book is called Creaturely. In the book, I found a paragraph of an Estonian German ethologist who wrote about animals and world making kind of. His name is Jakob von Uxku, uh, or I don't know how it's really pronounced, Uxkul, maybe Estonian. And, and he wrote about this little. He wrote about the text called A Stroll Through the Worlds of Animals and Men. And he's talking about the, about the Umwelt and the different worlds that exist simultaneously. Uh, kind of uh, parallel worlds of different creatures. And that idea put together with the, the Annunciation kind of and the, the kind of the perspective and how it ordered things kind of fascinated me and then that then led me to really to start working with the enunciation and making my own wor- version of it. Yeah, Uxkul kind of examines the perceptual world in which a creature, particularly maybe a non-human creature, exists and acts as a subject in its own narratives, kind of a very first person oriented maybe approach. It it seems an interesting leap from Uxkul to to Mary. One of the things we see in the Annunciation is that we do see Mary's perspective of, say, for example, the angel coming to her. How did you put Uxkul together with, with Mary's story? Because I thought about the perspective and how with this linear perspective that we kind of, that were put into those paintings and through which then kind of became the cent- one of the central ways how we order information, how we see the world around us, which is actually the thing that interests me in, in moving image, how it represents the reality or transforms it or changes it and hides it and all, this, all these processes and how it gives us the information and how the narrative and the kind of the grammar of telling stories is is exactly using certain kind of perspective every time and in my works i try to kind of explore how to do things differently and especially recently kind of how to so the not only kind of the other perspective but how to kind of because i think that's kind of an impossible task but how to kind of concentrate on the transformation and how it is done like how the different worlds of other living creatures and their kind of uh, perspectives or their worlds are transferred into into ours the moving image grammar so that's what i'm doing in my works and so when i started to I think the Annunciation is a good example of kind of starting to order things in a certain way, which is which I also see as a link to the film and uh, the camera and its mechanisms and uh, as an extension of the human perception. I mean, I, it's leading perfectly to one of the really thunderous, jaw-dropping moments in in the work, which is when so throughout the the length of the piece, we see a, a couple of plantings in in in, in kind of the, the the backstage area, if you will, where where the players are rehearsing the enunciation and getting ready to perform it. 
and about i don't know three quarters of the way through you give us a shot where those plantings line up with a painted backdrop in a way that creates both perspective and reminds us of the illusion that that perspective is as you conceived the work was that the shot you wanted to get to was that kind of the thing you knew had to be there all along because it kind of feels like right. that as we watch because, it you know that's the first time that the camera kind of goes to the place of mary so it's kind of mary's point of view or before that everything is shot from outside the the space created there and it's mary is sitting there opposite the window and and when I started to kind of, when I decided that, okay, I'm going to do kind of, a, uh, how do you say, like a play from the, the, the uh, which is going to be the final scene of the Annunciation. So I, that they are kind of rehearsing it along the, the piece. And then in the end, they are really kind of playing there on the set, the thing that the angel is approaching Mary and everything is happening. And then I had to kind of think about where where could it start from? What could be the first image, the angel flying or what? And uh, then also after some time, I had to think about when I was turning the, the painting into the language of moving image, I ran into the thing like, what, what could be Mary's point of view shot like? Then I also, of course, had to think about like the character Mary. What is Mary like, what would she see, and all these things that really do not exist in the paintings or the Gospels. It's kind of uh, something that I had to kind of confront only because of the language of the moving image. So it's, um, or shall I say that they become kind of obvious things to consider, which is kind of interesting that I have to think about the character Mary because of the point of view shot and what she would see. And then I just decided to kind of to kind of kind of use the perspective when Mary is looking at the angel, the linear perspective. I think part of why that fascinates me is throughout the history of Marian representation in, in Catholic and Christian art you never get the sense that Mary, you know, of who Mary is, of Mary's value as or her values as a person. She's, she's, you know, almost from the start, almost from the fifth century, merely iconography. And it seems that your enunciation repeatedly goes out of a way, out of its way to kind of give us a humanist, human, living, breathing Mary. And there are a couple of ways in which you do that that I want to ask about. One of them is is spoken dialogue in the piece. And I, as I as, as I understand it, you outlined kind of a suggested script, but encouraged the actresses in the film, most of whom are amateurs, to to digress from it, to 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 just talk. And so there's a point in, in, in your work where the characters are discussing the idea of immaculate conception and how Mary was 
about to experience it and how Mary's cousin had experienced it and how Mary's mother, St. Anne, <laughs> had experienced it. <laughs> and one of the characters says, wow, getting pregnant by the Holy Spirit seems to run in the family, which is both smart and funny. Was that in, in, in your script outline or was that entirely ad-libbed on the spot? <laughs> I have to say, I cannot remember. I think it was in the script. But what is important there to kind of remember that I, I, I was working there with a group of women who were all amateurs. Plus, they were kind of women whose lives hadn't gone kind of, how do you say, the straight path towards the vir virtue. So they have had kind of many different experiences and some of them had uh, kind of had problems with alcohol or drugs or they've been kind of I, where I found not all of them, but many of them was the, how do you say it in English, like Diagonist Institute. The, the, the Helsinki Deaconess Institute. It's yeah. Exactly. Uh, from the support services, their support services for women. And then I just asked whether people, were there any of them would be interested in, in doing this project with me. And yeah, they, they were. And so I also, about the script that I, I've kind of felt responsible that I should have something that they could rely on if they wanted to kind of do it. So we kind of went through the script, but I also encouraged them to talk about the issues that were important for them. And also what happened was that some of them were kind of true believers, which I didn't know. And I didn't, for example, know that Mary really goes to church and, uh, I mean, the, the woman who acted the role of Mary. And so that also brought something in the, in the dialogues. And uh, then the, the director there, who was kind of in, in the film, in the installation, who is directing the women, to, she's a professional actor. And for her, um, her role was kind of, you know, to keep everything, the things together, that certain issues well, were talked about there. But then again, I, I've been saying that the script is kind of support structure there, because on the other hand, I really wanted it to be open as the whole piece, even if the piece is about the certain kind of way of structuring things and information and uh, way of creating meaning. I wanted to kind of the piece itself to kind of be more open than many of my earlier narratives so that um, it was more like an exp exploration into how to kind of have a story without really having a certain way of approaching in the story and how to keep the work and the narrative and the world that's created in inside the piece, how to keep it as long and as open as possible, but still have a certain kind of, how do you say, proceedings of, of things. No, it absolutely, it absolutely does. One of the, I think one of the places it does that is near the end of the film where the actress who plays Mary or the player who plays Mary, approaches the donkey in a snowy, very snowy, I mean, a, you know, many feet of snow on the ground field. And just as she is about to try to mount the donkey, step up on a chair to get up on the donkey, she kind of falls down in the snow, which is not something 
that in kind of Christian stories about Mary, I mean, we certainly never in a single painting in the history of the world of Mary see her falling down. And it's, it, it struck me as kind of one of those moments where you make or present Mary as an actual human. Was falling down there your instruction or did it just happen because there were four feet of snow on the ground? <laughs> oh, no, no. We actually took, I don't remember, maybe three takes. And this this take was that we used was the first one. And it was accidental. You know, it, the chair was slippery and uh, it was difficult to walk in the narrow path there, which is kind of funny. There's a narrow <laughs> cut path through the snow to the donkey, yeah. But we agreed that she has to go back to the women, that she has kind of forgotten her her hat. And, but I like to kind of, then then when I, and it was also the longest take. So in a way, one shouldn't use anything like that because it was in a way full of mistakes, but which I loved because, you know, I think it was really a good take and suitable way of how she did what she should for the piece, for the, for the, for the things that I aimed at, for the kind of certain atmosphere and 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 the topic of, and also that scene, somebody first criticized that it looks like that it's very intentional that the women are kind of all, already waiting for her to come and pick up the hat. How do you call that in English? It's not really a hat, but a woolen a cap, a kind of a woolen cap, yeah. Woolen cap, yeah. But I think that's really. That's something that I was really after, that certain kind of kind of that things you see that things are planned and then you see that things aren't planned and kind of this openness and uh, certain things are coming by kind of are, are, are like accidental and certain things are really well performed. So this kind of con- combination is I think it's it's really fascinating. It's uh, yeah. And. I had a, this kind of intuition that this is how we should approach things in this piece. It breathes perfectly. And of course, the hat, which Mary goes back to pick up, is blue. And throughout the piece, she's wearing blue and red, the colors, the traditional colors of her representation in Christian art. My guest is Aeliza Attila. We'll be right back after a break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents After Picasso, 80 Contemporary Artists, on view September 19th through December 27th. After Picasso is a major exhibition examining Picasso's potent legacy and ongoing impact on several generations of artists. This vibrant show fills the entirety of the Wexner Center's galleries and includes a diverse array of work from international talent such as Andy Warhol, Louise Lawler, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Amy Selman, Haimo Zobring, Jasper Johns, and many more. Originally organized by the Dijkter Holland and called Picasso and Contemporary Art, this exhibition is making its only stop in the United States at the Wexner Center. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Hammer Museum presents Uh-Oh, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's Alma Mater, backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh Uh-oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles October 11th to January 24th. 
visit hammer.ucla.edu. And now back to my conversation with Ed. We've been discussing the outdoor scenes in, in the Annunciation, and there are crazy beautiful landscape shots in many of your works, such as at the beginning of the Annunciation too, or, or in the house, or, you know, in, in, I don't know about everything you've made, but pretty darn close. Now, I know Americans get hung up on landscape because landscape is to American art what the church and Christianity is to European art. But are you interested in landscape as a subject or mostly as a stage in which to put other things? Now that you said that about the Americans, I think that's really interesting. I never really thought about this, but I think it's a similar thing with us Finns, that it's the, you know, the church for us. And because, we, you know, we, most of us still have summer cottages by a lake in a forest or, and we really spend a lot of time in the nature. And if you travel through Finland from the south to the north to Lapland, and a friend of mine actually did this, that he shot kind of a couple of every every hundred kilometers, a couple of minutes, and then put it together. And most of it was forest. So it tells a lot about the country, how it still is, even if the forest isn't what it used to be. It's more like a, like a I'd say, a commercial forest or, you know, yeah. I was born in a small town 100 kilometers north from Helsinki called Hamenlinna, the same town that the composer Sibelius was born. And there's a, we lived really near a forest park, kind of. A, and actually, that's where the beginning of the Annunciation is shot. And when I, was, when I was a teenager, I had a dog. And after school, when I was in high school, I used to go to the forest kind of almost not every day but really often and walk around there with the dog and I still know the paths there where they lead and so I kind of this background put maybe put together with my interest in 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 our planet and what's happening around us and the the other creatures and the living things it's kind of I don't know very natural for me to use landscapes try to kind of tell the stories, the events, things through something else than only us humans. There's a moment in, well, a long moment, maybe three or four minutes worth of of studies on the ecology of Drama One, the, the new piece or the newest piece in which you, the artist, show us the landscape as it might be seen by butterflies. And you do this a couple ways. You do this by the shots that the viewer of the artwork sees in the film installation move around through a landscape as if it was the butterfly seeing it. That would, you know, kind of a, a continuation of your or interest in Oops, cool. As if it would be the, the material that is shot in a way that the bat, when, when you try to shoot a butterfly, or if be a butterfly's point of view. Yeah, yeah. And then, and you also, I'm trying to think of how to describe this without making it sound silly, because in the film it doesn't seem silly, it seems perfectly logical. You have your players, your actors, and your acrobats, as you refer to them in the script, recreate cocoons in which caterpillars live in trees. 
before emerging. And they do this in green sleeping bags, and we even get a shot of what it might look like in the total dark inside the sleeping bag. On, on one hand, that could come from or be motivated by your experience with landscape and, and seeing butterflies in nature in the forest or, or near your cabin on the lake. On the other hand, it could be something from childhood. I mean, as I watched that sequence, I remember chasing butterflies through the forest when I was like five years old, right? Does it come from either of those places or is it kind of a more theoretical interest in something else? I think it's the last one because, you know, what really fascinates me there, it's like, where shall I start actually? Because I think for this, the beginning of the piece, when I started making this, I actually had written another script and when I was applying, which was more like my earlier pieces, but more like the Annunciation, but the guy who was at that time in the Finnish Film Foundation didn't get it at all. And because when I was writing the script, I really tried to kind of avoid certain kind of narrative, a certain kind of things leading to other, having in mind to creating more space to the other kind of experiences or seeing the world or experiencing the world and kind of, again, try to make the narrative somehow breathe more, you know, easily, not just kind of following the certain kind of plot. And I spent a lot of time with this script because it's so easy, you know, to go to start getting excited and then write certain kind of dialogue for for the, the, the characters and then forget about this thing that, hey, what I was really trying to is kind of the break and stretch and extend the narrative. And I spent a little, little bit more than half a year with the script and then I showed it to this guy he just didn't get it at all. He sent me 36 questions, which were like kind of good for students studying um, the film. And he also told me that I shouldn't do anything which is kind of even near the Annunciation because that's the wrong direction to go. But anyway, that's kind of only the, the background. And because of this, I then, because he wanted me to go back to the script and rewrite it, and there were a lot of scenes to be shot during the winter time. And it meant to me that if he he kind of wanted to me to to kind of kind of rewrite it and send it back to him for the for the for the kind of their meeting in two months time, which meant that I didn't have any chance to shoot it that winter. So I just left it and then I wrote studies on the ecology of drama. I for that piece, I took another kind of approach. I wanted you in the beginning to kind of distance the viewers from the uh, drama. And I thought about the kind of lecture performances. And I, that's what I tried that the actor in the kind of first part of the film would be doing. And then when, uh, or half, maybe half through, and then to really talk about these issues and because I felt that it, it's important and I felt that somehow in this situation it would be good to really to kind of straightforwardly bring up those issues and, and those things that I'd then later on and also already in the Annunciation had kind of studied. But somehow I felt that they may 
be quite difficult for some people. They would just see the thing that it's not how it should be, that and also that it may be a mistake. And also I felt that it to kind of study the possibilities of, of a different kind of drama means that in somehow going back to the the kind of uh, not really orig- origins, but something like the maybe basic things of representation and and presentation and and acting and being in the image and uh, questions like what is required of an actor from a person, a creature who is acting in moving image. This leads me back to then to the the scene with the where the the acrobats are climbing in the trees and going inside the sleeping bags because I thought that first of all I think it like when I saw it for the first time I mean the close-ups and and then I realized that how clearly the human figure is is present there even if you cannot see the person and even it's kind of the the, even they are mimicking of being the the what's the word in English this performing copying i mean i think mimicking is about the right word yeah yeah not mimicking but the the creature inside the larvae oh oh yes the yeah i guess yeah, the larvae in there but then i when i kind of thought about it a little more what then later really fascinates me because it's uh, there in you can see both the human and the creature that the human is kind of presenting kind of making image of so I, I saw that it was kind of, for me, it was something kind of, you know, trying to, because it's really difficult re- to try and read the other creature and the, the kind of uh, the presence of the other creature in a human moving image uh, piece. And uh, so, yeah. That that reminds me of, from the beginning of of the piece of, of studies on the ecology of trauma one that there's a shot of the narrator the actress who plays the narrator speaking but she's not looking at the camera the camera is looking at the back of her head and it kind of ties it up as seeing what someone else is seeing whether it's you know a butterfly or a narrator in a film or an actress playing a narrator in a film so that people would not concentrate on her but the bush, the beautiful bush around her. So she, at, at the beginning, she's doing, uh, she's saying that she's she's going to do a certain amount of kind of um, what's that in English? Again? Sorry, kind of exercises to to diminish the role of the human in the image, and that was one of the exercises. Yeah, and I kept thinking of it throughout the artwork. I mean, it was really kind of foundational for me. I also want to ask you about Horizontal, which is the 2011 piece, which features an enormous spruce tree shot by six cameras and presented on six screens. And it's presented as if the tree is indeed horizontal, as if it's not standing up, but is on its side. At least that's what it looks like in a gallery. Exactly, in a human space. Yeah, yeah, we'll have images of it on manpodcast.com, which will probably make it clearer than I am. I have a couple questions about it. The, the first one, so you made the Annunciation in 2010 and Horizontal in 2011. Was there overlap between your making those two pieces and thinking through them, or were they completely separate projects? No, no, actually, I started to, you know, when we were shooting the Annunciation in the nature park, in the, in the forest park, 
And the plan was first to shoot some la- shoot some landscape, and then shoot some uh, kind of uh, images of the like close-ups and other kind of images of the trees. And then we, of course, when we approach the trees, we quite soon realized that it's an impossible task, because you know when you go go close to a tree, you just get a clo- really kind of part of the tree. You can't get a portrait of a, of a tree and then when you walk back it's not anymore the tree it's the landscape it's the forest or tree in a landscape or you know and then if you uh, change the lens for a wide angle the tree is going to be distorted so then we kind of there we abandoned the idea of shooting trees but then it kind of bothered me it also led me to think about the mechanisms of the of the camera, the film camera, and how it works. And then after a couple of months after completing the Annunciation, I decided to make a series of drawings of this and kind of try to kind of deal with this problematics, this this issue that how the other creatures, how the tree is, what happens to a tree when it's rep- represented is in a certain format in a kind of in certain for example certain aspect ratio and then when I was the first of the images what I did was in four parts I if I remember right the drawing is called uh, aspect ratio and in the first image you see the the I can't even remember the the top part of the tree and in the second one you see the lower part of the tree and in the and the rest of the tree is missing. And then on the third one, you see the tree kind of kneeling, but still the top of the tree is missing. And then the last part, you see the uh, tree kneeling and bending out of the top, kind of the head or the top of the trees, so that the whole of the tree fits in the image. And then when I was doing these kind of drawings, kind of using the, the grammar of the of the film and kind of to approach this topic, then I thought about why couldn't I kind of take it really seriously and try also to do it uh, with a moving image. And so I decided that I will go and try to shoot a portrait of a tree, of a fir tree. So that's what we did. It took uh, maybe one and a half months, I can't really remember, to find a certain kind of tree first and because you wanted empty space behind it. Yeah, you wanted to be able to isolate it. Needs to be kind of needed to be there. There shouldn't be anything really behind the tree. We should get close to the tree, and it should be of certain about a certain height and certain width to kind of because my plan was originally to shoot it with or present it with five images, and then after you know the search, we finally found a tree, and. First, we thought we planned that we are going to build a scaffolding next to the tree, but then we anyway went to a scissor lift because that was movable. And if we needed to move because the sun was moving, we could do it. And with a with scissor lift, we didn't uh, get to shoot everything at the same, simultaneously at the same time. Uh, but on the other hand, then we didn't need to have five cameras. Then we started to shoot it from the top, and it, in the end, we found out that we will need six images. 
And in Finnish, it's kind of funny because the word, the word six is kuusi, and it's the same word for the tree. It's called kuusi too. Yeah, so, in Finnish. Exactly. But the thing is kind of that the more we try to kind of solve all the technical problems and find a certain kind of lens and find a certain kind of tree and the more time we spend with kind of trying to solve the problems how to approach the tree the fir tree the more we kind of distance distanced also ourselves from the tree and went to kind of the into the world of representation and the world of the technical equipment and technical means for created for representing the reality around us which i found really interesting and being kind of the central topic also of the of the the piece i love how much work it takes to make a portrait of a tree when you first showed the annunciation in horizontal in the united states at marion goodman gallery you showed them concurrently you know it was one show with the two with the two works was that a conscious decision to explore and show two of the greatest, most enduring subjects in art history, a very Catholic subject and landscape at the same time? I didn't think of it that way at the moment because, you know, uh, I wanted to show the Annunciation and then I wanted to have the drawings. And then it was optional whether I could also show something in the South Gallery. Then I sent an email and spoke over the phone with Marian and asked whether I explained her the project, the, the horizontal, and said that I'd really love to make that piece and so that they're at the same time. And she said, sure, that it's, sounds interesting. And that's then what we we did. But I, you know, it's for me, it's about the kind of, how do you say it? It's kind of the about the same process, the same part of the same effort to approach the nature or the surroundings and the, explore the ways of representation and the, how things are transformed into moving image and the language of, of moving image and kind of trying to make it visible, the whole process, the whole thing that is so crucial in when we are creating images of our real, reality around us. Finally, many of your pieces, maybe maybe a third, maybe a half of them, feature dogs. You're a dog owner. I think we may have heard your dog barking once or twice in the background as, as we've been talking. Do you include dogs because you're comfortable with dogs? You, you enjoy them? You think that they're in a, a point from which a viewer can enter and relate to what's going on in a piece? Or is there uh, a different reason? I'd like to work with many animals. I also had an, a chance a couple of years ago to work with a wolf, which was actually from US. It's it's from a pack from there, I can't, somewhere in Nevada, where they have a university where they study wolves and they have kind of these packs of wolves, I think two, where, you know, they research them and they live with uh, humans in certain areas. And, uh, but I then I didn't do it because it would have been really difficult. So dangerous and um, unpredictable and a wild animal anyway. And the dog is kind of, you know, it's the natural choice kind of, you know, it's kind of, 
human's best friend. It's kind of, you know, the animal that is easy to approach and then is anyway not a human, not it's another creature with uh, which to communicate and try to learn the language and try to see the world and share maybe our senses and um, kind of easily do let's say part of the project that i'm interested in and also it's it's easy to kind of han- have a long-term relationship with a talk uh, w- with a dog and uh, kind of try to at, and it's also been kind of unconscious and conscious like in the early works me we okay create the black and white really short things they're also one of the characters is kind of barking like a dog and turning into a dog and talking about this and then also in the the piece I showed in Venice, 1999, Consolation Service, that's also where there are dogs and the kind of the other kind of being or world presents. And uh, and the two main characters bark at each other as if they were dogs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they're they're unavoidable. <laughs> but also then in in, in the Annunciation, there are the donkeys. You know, it's like. There's one scene that I really like myself, uh, where the 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 women are kind of the two women or three women are interviewing the uh, the woman who owns the donkeys, and they uh, I told them that that you can just ask questions about the donkeys, what you like to ask, and then there's this kind of a conversation going on, but the donkey really steals the scene because it starts biting the Mary's hair, and uh, and. So we just had, I, I'm sure that nobody's really, especially in the film version, which I made, because the film version is with one screen and it's concentrating on the donkey and Mary, what's happening there. So nobody is really listening to the dialogue, but it's kind of, it's about the donkey and how the donkey approaches the situation. and the. No, it's, it's great because Mary almost laughs too, and you can almost see her trying to hold it together. <laughs> and it's also, it's really... Actually, it's also very rewarding and really interesting to work with the animals. There's one always learns something new and is, you know, I'm always surprised and the atmosphere is good. And it's, it's about life. It's about um, living things and uh, it's very enjoyable. Yeah. The last shot of studies on the ecology of drama is, is a husky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Six years old. Yeah, is actually from the same place where the where the wolf lives. Ayelisa Atala, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Experience tomorrow's art history today for free and in a beautiful, intimate setting at Blaffer Art Museum. On view this fall. Did you know we taught them how to dance? the first solo museum exhibition for British-Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa, and a test of art's capacity to envision new concepts of environmentalism. Also on view, Time Image, an international group survey of temporal concerns in contemporary art. More at blafferartmuseum.org. In 2009, the Getty Foundation launched the Online Scholarly Catalog Initiative to rethink the museum collection catalog for the digital age. Eight museums received grants to work collaboratively to tackle the challenges of online publishing by creating new prototypes, exploring interactive opportunities including the ability to zoom in on detailed images of artworks, overlay them with conservation documentation, and view artists' videos, just to name a few.
All eight digital catalogs are now freely available online. To learn more and to browse the catalogs, visit getty.edu foundation. Welcome back. My next guest is Tyler Kahn. He's the co-curator, along with Douglas Dreispoon, of Imperfections by Chance, Paul Feely Retrospective, 1954-66. to The show is at the Columbus Museum of Art, where Kahn is a curator, through January 10th, 2016. Tyler Kahn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So as a painter, as an artist, Paul Feely starts out in an unusual place for what he became, for who he became. He starts out as a student of Cecilia Bowe, of all people, and goes on to become a color field painter whose work was notable for this kind of distinct, distinctive set of shapes, kind of often used in ways that reference seriality. So that's quite a spectrum for a painter who lived not a long life. Is there a straightforward or readily explicable way of, of detailing how he got from where he started to where he ended up? You know, pretty pretty quickly after his tutelage under Cecilia Bow and uh, and others. Thomas Hart Benton. Thomas Hart Benton, exactly. He he took a, a really strong interest in cubism, and I mean, Feely is best known partly as a as a teacher. Really, he taught at Bennington College in Vermont between 1939 until his death in 1966, and he was notably really the uh, teacher of. Uh, Helen Frankenthaler, an early teacher of hers. But Feely, I mean, what, what really changed Feely's work was an exhibition in 1952 that he put on at the Carriage Barn uh, uh, Gallery at Bennington College, which was the first retrospective of Jackson Pollock's work. Feely, you know, sort of fell into the whole New York School uh, milieu as a result of his friendship with Helen Frankenthaler, who at the time started going out uh, with Clement Greenberg. And so uh, both Helen and Clem, if I can use their first names, <laughs> were frequent visitors to Bennington, and they decided to, to do this uh, exhibition of Jackson Pollock's work. It was the first public retrospective of Pollock's work. And this made a very deep impression on Feely. He had been teaching Cubism primarily, and you know, at, you know, in the late 1940s, teaching Cubism would probably have been a bit of an anachronism at that point. But you know, very quickly after this 1952 show, he changed up the way he approached the making of artwork to involve something that, well, as he said, a more direct experience. So he started doing things like crumpling up the canvas and painting the, painting the canvas, stretching it back out. He experimented with all kinds of uh, gestural abstraction and just opening the work up a little bit more to chance. But uh, Feely wasn't very comfortable in this uh, expressionist mode as an artist, so he, he pulled he, well, actually, he destroyed a lot of that work from the early and mid-1950s. Your show starts in 1954, e for example. E yeah. Exactly, with a, with a work that's called The Red Blotch from 1954, which is exactly as the title might uh, um, say. It's kind of a blotch of red paint hovering in the middle of a green field. There's a little bit of space between the red and the green field, and this is it's a bit uh, of a prescient painting in that sense. It really 
sets up something that Fili would explore much later on in his work. And, and yes, he died, we can talk further about the development of his work, but he died in 1966 as a result of acute uh, leukemia, which is, you know, been associated with his service as a Marine uh, during World War II. He had a, a break from Bennington College during the war and he enlisted as a Marine and he was among the first American troops to enter Nagasaki after the, uh, the bombing there and probably received a, a pretty serious dose of radiation at the time. He died at 55 years old, uh, I think? Yes. We'll have an image of Red Blotch on um, manpodcast.com. It's, it's an interesting painting for lots of reasons, among them that it's it's kind of a form that that we see kind of a possibly rising or setting sun that we see in, in Max Ernst, Clifford Still, Miro. I mean, there's a, you know, it's almost like he's trying to figure out his new language in the context of forms that would have been familiar. So did Helen Frankenthaler, the student in this case, really kind of pull the teacher along into the new thing, both socially and artistically? Yes, I think that's fair to say. When Frankenthaler uh, talked about her experience as a, um, a student of Feely's, she really you know, emphasized Cubism as what he was teaching. So I, th I think it really did, you know, both socially and, as you say, artistically pull Feely into, you know, into the, the New York school. His work, you know, I've never... I don't think a museum has done the big how 1950s and six, early 60s paintings influenced minimalism show that somebody will do at some point. But in a lot of ways, a lot of things Feely is, is interested in kind of points in the direction that minimalism w would go starting around 62 or 63. How important was paring down form and, and line to him? Was that something he was consciously thinking of first in painting and then when he started making sculpture near the end of his life? I'm not sure that Feely would have seen himself as part of, you know, more recent current of minimalism, per se. It, what, that wasn't necessarily his social world either. No, he was, he was hanging around with David Smith and Anthony Caro. And... Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, Anthony Caro, he lived in Bennington, as did Kenneth Nolan and Jules Olitsky. Who taught at Bennington. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Kenneth Nolan lived on uh, Robert Frost's old farm in Bennington, and it was Feely who had uh, you know, brought him to that place and shown him around, and, um, and eventually he bought it and, and stayed for some time. But as far as minimalism goes, I'm, I'm not sure. I think he would have seen his work as you know, part of his own development, looking at the breaking up the space of the canvas, which again is part of what Cubist language is about. Um, this play of figure and ground and that separation, uh, that breaking up of the space into different fields. You know, if anything, it was Barnett Newman who showed Feely the way out of Pollock and the way uh, um, out of that more gestural side of abstract expressionism. Um, but you can make that argument too with, uh, you know, where does Newman's work sit in relationship to minimalism? And he might, he might have said the same, that he was really interested in the internal development of his own work with uh, respect to form and space and so on. Donald Judd gave a Feely exhibition at one point, I don't remember the year, a, a rather lukewarm review. And one of those little 
indicators about about Judd is when he gave somebody a lukewarm review, he saw a playing field on which he was not yet prepared to compete. Um, his his reviews of Ann Truitt are famous examples of that. And so when I read in the catalog Judd's Judd's thoughts on Feely, I thought to myself, ah, all all, all Judd and his pals are looking at these Feelys in in the late fifties, Big Guggenheim retrospective in fifty eight. And it, it, it just gets one wondering what... Well, the Guggenheim uh, re- retrospective of Feely's work wasn't... 66, was, I'm sorry. Yeah, 68, actually. So oh, 68. That, that was a memorial exhibition. So Feely had died in 1966. And then Gene Barrow put on that show in 1968. What impact did being in Vermont have on, on Feely? And I guess I don't just mean the people to whom he had access, but the space to which he had access in terms of studio space, the landscape to which he had access, and maybe even, oh, a kind of strange purchase he made in the summer of 1962. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I'm not sure he even purchased it. He probably just picked up this information. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. And so Feely was sort of the de facto head of you know, the Bennington's uh, art program. And in some ways, he brought the art world to him. So he was doing, you know, exhibitions. I mentioned the Pollock exhibition, but there was also uh, Joseph Albers, Adolf Gottlieb, Hans Hoffman, Barnett Newman, a kind of a significant Barnett Newman show in 1958, uh, which helped bring uh, Newman back into the art world after, you know, some years where he didn't uh, show work. But uh, let's see who else, Robert Motherwell, and uh, I'm sure, like, I think Morris Lewis, uh, Kenneth Nolan, Olitsky, Frankenthaler, you know, it was a really impressive roster of artists who showed uh, and or lived in Bennington. So there was a real, you know, outpost of the New York school right there in Bennington. But certainly, I, I think he was probably affected by that, the open spaces, the rolling landscape of the, you know, the Green Mountains. And yes, so in 1962, Feely was passing through Troy, New York, and saw a dilapidated neoclassical building that was being torn ba- down. And, uh, and yes, he either you know, bought or just uh, you know, received <laughs> two of these neoclassical columns, quite large. They must have been, I, w- I would say, 20 feet uh, tall or so, and he put them right off of one corner of his studio. And that was, I think that was one of the first indications that Feely was starting to think about about a sculptural practice, about bringing his work into three dimensions. And so it's a kind of, you know, it's his first ready-made, but in the same, you know, you know it was some months later that he took a piece of wood down to the carpenter at Bennington College and had him put it on a lathe and and carve it into this, what should we call it, a baluster shape that uh, is what I think he termed it, but you could say it's sort of like a, a peanut <laughs> with uh, a bulge in the, in the middle as well. So, yeah, and that, that really came back in the very tail end of Feely's life. Just the last three, four months of his life, he turned toward working in three dimensions and using some of the same motifs that he had in his paintings. Which is all the more striking because he's, being a color field painter committed to flatter than flat, 
on canvas and then he translates similar shapes and colors for that matter into three dimensions I mean, i can't think of a lot of examples of that among feely's peers what do we know about why that became attractive to him i wonder how how interested feely really was in the idea of flatness yes he, he did thin down his paints he used this kind of soak stain method which uh, you know may or may not have come from either, either pollock or uh, Helen Frankenthaler herself, but uh, yes, so he thinned out his paints and he, he let them soak into the canvas. He worked on the floor, and he, but he was, uh, he was also interested in the three-dimensionality of the canvas itself. There's a work in the show called The Other Side. It's from 1957. It does have this kind of yellow column, you could say, in the in the center, and it's flanked by two semicircles of of blue that are blue fields of paint. The one on the left is a little bit darker. And in just sort of thinking about this painting, it came to mind that he had painted the darker one on the front of the canvas and the lighter on the on the reverse of the canvas. So he just flipped it over. It's the same with a, there's a kind of like a red or pink field at the top and bottom and uh, and they're kind of the same same sort of situation that he created there. So, and also later in 1961, he, he uh, made a series of canvases that had holes in the middle of them with a kind of internal frame and you could see you know, through the painting. In some ways reminiscent of what Judd was doing at about the same time with, with paintings where he was inserting kind of metal voids, for example, into them in the center of canvases bigger canvases, but yeah. And these works were shown in that um, you know, shaped canvas exhibition in 1965. Uh, so in and amongst you know, a whole range of artists who are uh, employing that new relationship between the support and, and the painted surface. You know, we, we, we talked a moment ago about some of the people who, who came and visited Feely at Bennington and who were friends of his. Do you see either in, in the painting or, or in the sculpture David Smith influence? Perhaps I see a little bit more of Tony Smith. <laughs> you know, the, that Tony Smith had a, a series of works, the Louisenberg series, the paintings, which do have these sort of peanut shapes or these or quatrefoils that uh, Feely also employed as a recurring motif in his paintings and uh, later on in his sculptural practice. You could also say that Feely employed the same sort of relationship to his sculpture as Tony Smith in the sense that he had it fabricated for him. You know, Tony Smith, I think, once said that you know, the only time that he ever touched his sculpture was when a photographer wanted him to lean up against it uh, to take a shot of him. And that was the same with uh, Paul Feely. He had as uh, studio assistant Ruth Ann Friedenthal, who uh, who came and painted all of, pretty much all of his sculptural work. Feely also, as I, I mentioned, uh, the, the carpenter Bill Colvin at uh, Bennington College, and it was he who also fabricated many of the shapes that he employed. One of the neat little stories in the catalog is probably a good one to end on. I guess Feely carried a little piece of gold leaf around with him? Yes, I, I gather that he kept this in his wallet and there was a, you know, when he died, he left several models for works. 
one of them was a, a jack shape. So it's now at the Smithsonian. It's now at the Smithsonian, um, and it Helen Feely uh, had that piece of gold leaf that he carried around um, applied to to that work that's at the uh, at the Smithsonian now. But Feely's work, I think it's, you know, what attracted me to the work originally was its sense of humor. I mentioned before that Feely was influenced by Jackson Pollock and tried using the drip right, as a way of making work. Later on in, the, you know, many of his works like Siphos or from 1958 or Caligula from 1960, and goes uh, on and on really through his work in the, into 1962, 63. Feely is using the image of the drip rather than employing a, you know, the method of dripping paint, like you know, Jack the, the Dripper, as he was called uh, by Life magazine. And he, so that's a kind of playfulness with his you know, artistic inspiration. And he, he did the same thing with Barnett Newman, where he made a, an untitled work that is two, uh, two fields, one is red and one is green, and there is this undulating line that goes down the center of, of the canvas vertically, and it looks exactly like a, a zipper, and it plays off of Barnett Newman's zip, is uh, what I would, I would argue. But also there's this very playfulness with the biomorphic image uh, with figure in, in terms of figure and ground. So there are paintings that look like perhaps a, a blue sort of spinal column, but around it is a row of yellow teeth. And this is a work called Tiberius from 1961. You can see that he was thinking about classical culture. He'd had a lot of works that were titled um, after Greco-Roman emperors and generals and, and places exactly um, of work like Troy, Carthage, that were all titled actually after towns in New York State with Greek-Roman names. So there's a lot of, of layers of reference to, to the body, to, to games. Uh, we talked about jacks, and uh, you know there are several other things. Constellations. Many of his uh, titles later on of paintings uh, re reference the Arabic names for different constellations or stars. So, you know, he really is really an abstract painter, but he is very much open, unlike many of uh, those in his milieu, to a whole range of references and terms and other layers of meaning, which which have which sort of rub up very nicely against all of the formal concerns in his work as well. You mentioned the repeating drip forms as, as one example of something that's in the paintings, and one could almost read that as a bridge to the seriality that New York was becoming so interested in in the early 60s. Th that's true, and the, the, the repetition and different arrangements of these drip forms do have a, a serial quality to them. There's one work, Vespasian, which looks a bit like a, a splayed out rib cage, uh, a light green, but, but the, 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 the darker fields around it that form the, the, in, the negative space of that rib cage are drips that are sort of dripping inwards toward the center of the painting. Even even Jack, once we're talking about drips, one can see it as drips emanating from a center, pushing outward. Exactly. And Philly was, you know, at the same time, 
his pictorial interest, you could say, is is in that shape and the repetition of that form, but it's also very much about the negative space around it. So he is looking at the way the 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 blank canvas, the empty space, pushes up against, sort of pinches those jack shapes. And it's the same with his in later on with his sculptural work, that becomes our space, the the real space around the sculptures as we sort of circumnavigated. So few of these sculptures, uh, Ruth Ann Friedenthal, his studio assistant, always called them three-dimensional paintings. We talked about that work, The Other Side, which was painted on both sides of the canvas. And it's this kind of collateral effect of the Soakstein method that the, the back of the painting is a mirror image of the front of the painting. Um, it's very startling when you see you know, the works come off the walls. If you can see the back of the canvas, it's uh, very much like you're looking at the front of the canvas. And Feely's sculptures uh, utilize exactly that kind of effect where he will make this quatrefoil shape and it'll be painted uh, identically on both sides of it and then have it as a sort of cross-sect it with another identical shape at a right angle. And so you get the sense of, as you're looking at it, this quatrefoil shape, and it, and the sculpture tends to to hold, the sculpture tends to hold that shape as you move around it. It sort of phases in and out of itself. It's slightly uncanny, actually, because you're walking around the sculpture and you sort of know that it is, you know, you can really tell from looking at it in one glance what the sculpture is, but nevertheless, there is something about walking around it that is surprising and slightly strange about it. And I think that was part of you know, what Feely was, was interested in, in our movement around the, around the work. And yes, I suppose you could relate that to you know, readings of minimalism as well. The, the, most of the sculptures are indeed oil-based enamel on wood. Jack, which we were discussing, is gold leaf. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Yes. Tyler Can, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. Thanks. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.